Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. Uh, My name is Marvin Goldfried and I am having a dialogue podcast with my good friend and colleague. Alan Francis. Good morning, Marvin. Thank you, Alan. It's always a delight to see you. It's always good to see you and good luck with your moving. I know that's a horrible, stressful thing. Take a look. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. So listen, last podcast was kind of interesting. We were talking about the development of DBT and our experiences, personal experiences with Marshall Linehan uh, and uh, her development of DBT. And it's without question, it has taken over like wildfire uh, all over the world. People are just loving DBT. And the question that I think we should discuss is, How is it different, if it is different, from CBT? Um, And we don't want to undercut the contributions made in DBT by any means. It's just a question that we want to go deeper in that and and look for, you know, real causal pathways in the change process. So what's your sense, Alan, about similarity difference? Well... I'm prejudiced. Uh, I edited Marsha's book, and she wanted to call it dialectic behavior therapy. And I convinced her, probably it was a mistake, but I convinced her to call it instead cognitive behavior therapy. I don't like the idea of each new therapy getting a new name, a new set of initials. So there are now about 50 different therapies that have been described, each with three initials to uh, indicate what they are. And I, I feel psychotherapy really is one unified thing and that there are various techniques applied within psychotherapy. So I'm a, I'm a lumper when it comes to psychotherapy. And I'll be describing today the reasons I think that we should recognize the wonders of DBT, but not see it as some radically different form yeah. of psychotherapy. Okay. I, I don't disagree with you, but I, I really would uh, don't know and would love to hear what you see as the wonders of, uh, of DBT and where it overlaps and where it doesn't with okay. CBT. What I think is wonderful about it, and, and we were there funding it. I mean, we were both very excited about the first grant that she submitted. I guess it was in 1981 or 1982. And as I remember it, Marsha wanted very much to be submitting the grant for parasuicidal behavior yeah. because that was her main interest. She hated the term borderline personality disorder, as I do, and I think you do. Yeah. That it borders on what? 
And we, we convinced her to use the term borderline because that was how she was going to get funded. What was wonderful was that these were the patients everyone hated to treat in those days. It would be, therapists were afraid of them. They didn't want the phone calls. They didn't want the suicide attempts. And what she did that was miraculous was to, to make these very desirable people to get to know, to get to help and gave therapists tools, both for understanding the individual's behavior and even more concretely for accepting it and for helping them to change it. And she added to psychotherapy something that was sorely missing at that point. And that was the idea that it wasn't enough to deal technically with this problem, this symptom, that behavior. It was also important, maybe even more important, to help the patient find meaning in their life. Yeah. She used, well, the techniques, well, she used the techniques of mindfulness, which had been very helpful in, in solving her problems and helping her to go from being the worst patient at the Institute of Living into one of the greatest psychologists of her time. Sure. She used those techniques to help patients find meaning in their lives, not just to control behaviors, to deal with symptoms, but also to find meaning. Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, mindfulness has been... Uh, used to a great extent by different forms of therapy now, uh, whether it's CBT or anything else. Um, I differ in opinion as to what her major contribution was. So I think her major contributions was the notion of the dialectical. Basically, what happened is that she came to Stony Brook to learn CBT uh, techniques, and she then started applying it to these borderline patients, even though she didn't label it as such. And it didn't work because they would say, you want me to do that? Why do you want me to do that? They wouldn't accept it. And it baffled her. Why are they not accepting it? And then she had an epiphany, which I think was the brilliant point and the turning point of her therapy. She said, these people were born with emotional regulation difficulties. And the people around them, parents and others, would criticize them for that. Oh, you're too sensitive. Oh, you know, you get too emotional. Stop being that way. They were born with this characteristic and then they were rejected for who they were. So they developed this ultra, ultra, ultra sensitive radar for being criticized. When Marsha would say, well, here's something you can do so that you are feeling better. They would take this as criticism. So the suggestion by the therapist before it was DBT, here's something you can do to feel better, was taken as criticism that, that there was something wrong with them. And she had that epiphany because she knew from her own personal experiences. So that's what I think, Alan, is, is, the, uh, is the key. To, to why it is called dialectical behavior therapy, at least in her language. Well, the interesting thing to me is the original definition of the word dialectic. In, in Greek, ancient Greek, it meant conversation. And the, in philosophy, it was mostly used to describe the Socratic method described by Plato in, in the way Socrates worked to present ideas and then the opposite of ideas of the, of the initial idea to have a conversation that would then lead to a synthesis. 
And I think that Marsha was brilliant, and not just brilliant, but also remarkably empathic because she had been through it herself in understanding that in order to be able to change, you had to have the paradoxical ability to accept who you were at that moment. And therapists had been terrible to her. So she had been locked up in the seclusion room for months at a time over the course of two years. She understood that therapists were not empathic towards individuals who had the kinds of problems she had and the kinds of problems she wanted to treat. And so the idea of radical acceptance, but then at the same time, a radical expectation for change. And no one was ever a tougher therapist than Marsha with a more velvet glove. Exactly. Iron hand in a velvet glove. Beautifully, beautiful metaphor. That's that's what it was. And there was genuine compassion and genuine caring. And I think that's what she never got from the treatment that she she was given when she was a teenager. So she had this this realization. And I think that's brilliant. Now, the question is, is this only for people who are borderline? Um, this is It's obviously been applied now to just about everything. And that sort of makes my point that the idea of therapists having gone through the troubles themselves, right. of radically accepting the individual, but then finding a way of helping them change, goes back to the very beginning of psychotherapy, that the first shaman going back 100,000, 200,000 years in hunting and gathering societies were often people who themselves experienced the difficulties they were treating. They often, they accepted the person who was Mm -hmm. having behavioral problems. They didn't banish them from the tribe as others might've, but they said, I have a way to bring you to a greater understanding. We're going to negotiate with the spirits find out who's cursing you. We're going to be able to solve this problem together and things will change. I guess my point is that what Marsha did was highlight an absolutely, nothing new is under the sun, but what she did was highlight an absolutely brilliant and emotionally vivid and and, and compelling way. What was always an essential part of psychotherapy. Right. And you know, Marsha, you spoke about, you talk about shamans. Carl Rogers, this was the, the essence of his therapy, was total, was radical acceptance, although it wasn't called such. It, it was unconditional positive regard. Okay, you know, similarity behaviorally is probably there. I once told Marsha with tongue-in-cheek, well, instead of calling it dialectical behavior therapy, why don't you call it dialectical non-directive therapy, where <laughs> you are, um, are person-centered, but also you're more directive. Uh, but I do think the blend of the two is what is needed in certain cases. And you don't have to be borderline patient to, to need that kind of thing. I would, add, I would go one step further and say it's needed in all therapies. Probably all therapists and with some patients to varying degrees. Some, patients, some people need more of it. Okay, so where's the behavior therapy? Part? Where's the CBT part? Well, the CBT part is in, in the coping skills. And then she separated that from the individual therapy, at least in her original formulation, that would be done um, in a group format where they would learn the coping skills. Now, let me say something about coping skills. This is a little bit of a historical note that uh, you may or may not know anything about. Um, Of course, this goes back to the 1970s 
when a bunch of us around the country and also in the UK were trying to put behavior therapy on the map. And we described these techniques and it was very, very directive. You know, you do this, you do that, you do that. And we used language of research because behavior therapy was an extrapolation from research. So we used language of research, which is like manipulate as in manipulate variables or control and control group. That was a big, big mistake because we got criticized. You're controlling people. You're going to be Machiavellian. This is a new form of, of mind control. And we realized, okay, you know, maybe we should not use this language. Maybe we, we should say what we're doing is we're trying to help the patient develop self-control so they can handle their own life. That was a little better, but it was also, we got criticized. We said, oh, self-control. You're inhibiting them. You're not allowing them to be, who, you know. It's, it's amazing. The, the power of, of words, as, as we well know, uh, can be enormous. So we finally hit on the idea. And this is, there was a group of us, and we had this little mini uh, uh, trend within behavior therapy. This was before CBT in the 70s. We said, let's, let's, let's think of it as coping skills. Mm-hmm. We are going to help a patient to learn to become their own therapist. So we can share with them the methods of coping, of, how, of emotion regulation, of changing their interpersonal behavior. We can hap- help them do that. But then between sessions, they will do it on their own because that's where a lot of, the, a lot of it takes place. And we called it coping skills. So that's an essential part of DBT. Well, Marvin, I have, an, CBT. I have an anecdote. Yeah, tell me about that that you're going to like. When we were editing her book, it was getting out of control in length, and I suggested that we divide the book into two parts. The first part was the explanation of her explanation of what were the basic biopsychosocial problems of people who suffered from borderline personality disorder. <laughs> What were the basic techniques of dialectic behavior therapy and of mindfulness and of helping to provide meaning? The second book would be the coping skills, the problem-oriented approach. Now, the interesting thing here historically was that I loved the problem-oriented, the coping skills part best. I thought that what Marsha was introducing that was most novel and could only be done by her because she had been through each of the problems herself And she understood the coping skills that had helped her climb out of the horrible condition that she had been in. And the way she describes coping skills with suicidal behavior, using rubber bands instead of cutting, the way she described interpersonal skills, the way she described emotional regulation skills, absolutely brilliant. I love that that book better. That book sold about five to one. The book that was not meant to be a separate book, the coping skills book, sold about five to one over the years. It's still a bestseller 30 years later. The problem-oriented part is the part that can be most easily adapted to average practice. The the interesting further debate Marcia and I had was that she insisted, she felt it was impossible to do DBT without doing the full package. 
If you just did the coping skills, that wouldn't be DBT anymore. Right. I argued the opposite. I said that not everyone in the world is going to be able to do the full DBT program. If you want this to be popular all around the world in settings that have many fewer resources, you can't expect everyone to do it the way you've done it. And it's vitally important that you adapt it in such a way that different settings can take the pieces that work for that setting. She was radically opposed to that. Her training program, very rigorous training program, she was unwilling to compromise with it. But in many parts of the world, the the coping skills aspects are so much more easily adapted to what's already being done that they're more integrated with the actual practice than the the whole DBT program. But these coping skills, Alan, this this is what she learned at Stony Brook. I know. For example, interpersonal effectiveness. I'll just say one thing. She learned at Stony Brook plus her own personal experience. Right. But the coping skills, interpersonal effectiveness, it's how to deal with other people and let them know what you need or want and not get pushed around, okay? We used to call this assertiveness training. And Marsha and I did a study on assertiveness training for women in the 70s during the feminist movement. And we want, I mean, the question that we had is, is the lack of assertiveness due to a deficiency or is it due to fear? And it turned out that we targeted both of them the fear and the deficiency, and that was the best method of intervention. And we got people to become uh, more self-assertive, which essentially, and we had a manual. We we had a training manual for this, which then Marsha then used for interpersonal effectiveness. Exactly. But it's the same kind of coping skill. So there it's, it's CBT. Yeah. And I guess that's my point, that that Einstein didn't develop relativity out of nowhere, that there were Lorenz equations and Maxwell equations and methods of seeing the world non-Euclidean, using non-Euclidean geometry. No one ever developed something completely de novo that's not dependent on the previous. Newton said he was a dwarf on the the shoulders of giants. And Marsh is very much drawing from the wealth of previous clinical experience going back 50,000 years, Buddhist experience going back 2,500 years, Stony Brook experience going back 50 years. Right, exactly. Pulling together strands into a beautiful fabric. Yeah, and it is a, and it is a beautiful fabric. But I think, you know, to pick up the point that you made at the very, very beginning, you know, what's the essence of trains? change what if we look beyond the techniques really what is going on and i do think one of the things that is going on with um with dbt is it's training the therapist to remain therapeutic and not get frustrated annoyed at their patient because the patient can be very very frustrating and can be and can directly attack the therapist and i think you know that's why many people uh don't like to work with this type of of population it's too stressful so one of the key aspects that she built in was a support group for therapists because research has shown 
that when a therapist gets annoyed or gets impatient, even if it's a slight tone of voice, uh, you know, the therapist may not yell at people, but there could be a tone of voice, an edge. If the person is really sensitive to criticism, they'll hear that edge. And the group is what keeps the therapist therapeutic. Yeah, I, I was remarkably grateful to Marsha in, in, in this way, among others. But now, but, and again, you know, I don't want people to think that we're knocking this form of therapy. We're, we're just thinking years ahead when somebody is able to finally come up with the key elements of, train, of change, the, great, the principles of change that cut across everything. And then, you know, the techniques could be tailored to the particular characteristics of the problem and the patient. But um, what happened is that Marsha would meet with a group of people and they designed a study where they would compare DBT with Gunderson's psychodynamic therapy. I don't know if you're aware of that study. Yeah, I'm very much aware of it, yeah. You are, okay. This, the, the lead author on that was one of Marsha's um, key uh, participants in uh, DBT, uh, Shelley McMain. And the Gunderson approach, uh, which has been around for a while, you undoubtedly know much more about that. Uh, it's psychodynamic, but it also has a group for the therapist to keep them therapeutic. Yeah. And they compared, so Linehan and her colleagues, or, or Shelley, McMain, Shelley McMain and her colleagues, including Linehan, um, found that there was no difference between the two conditions. Now, I think, and John Gunderson was also a major contributor to, to the notion that we shouldn't run away from difficult patients. So he yeah. developed, he adapted psychodynamic techniques into a supportive kind of psychotherapy, supportive of the patients and supportive of the therapists. And both of them were doing something that I, I think was absolutely crucial. I, I always felt that it was important for psychiatry to treat the most difficult patients that there's a temptation people, especially in private practice, to treat the easiest patients, that you get the best results if you start out with people who don't need the therapy in the first place. Mm -hmm. You get the easiest life if you're not gonna get phone calls from people because they're having a tough weekend. Mm -hmm. You make the most money if you treat the most successful people. Yeah. But it's not, a, it's not a rich career. You're not yeah. really doing much. You're sort of babysitting for the healthy. And I've always felt that it was our role as a profession to treat the most difficult patients. What Marsha did and John Gunderson did and a number of other people, but I think Marsha by far the most because she had been through it herself. She made treating the difficult patient an exciting adventure rather than a nuisance. Yeah, yeah. She didn't, if, yeah. You, if you knew her, if you understood what she was doing and saying, you wouldn't be screening away the difficult patient. You wouldn't be saying, oh, I don't like treating those people. You'd be saying, wow, this is an opportunity to really help someone. And we, we have multiple debts that we have to Marsha's contribution, you know, professionally and personally. But let me, let me add a PS on, on that um, uh, Gunderson versus DBT study. Um, the, the lead author was Shelley McMahon, and I knew Shelley for many, many years. And she, she came up with the results of no difference. And she was saying, I have to present this to Marsha 
<laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of apprehensive. I said, you got to do what you got to do. So she presented it to, to Marsha at a, at a research meeting that they had there. And Marsha said, well, you know, um, maybe the study was not well designed. And then Shelley said, but Marsha, we designed it here. Mm-hmm. And then Marsha was kind of miffed about that. And at a later point in time, Marsha came around and gave Shelley an award for conducting that study. So I think that's... It, it was interesting. Marsha always... Marsha was a much better clinician than she was a researcher. And yet at the same time, she had tremendous investment in the research that she did. Absolutely. And, and it, it wasn't her fault in a way that it was so hard to do because the patients were difficult to keep in treatment, so you had a high attrition rate. There weren't good outcome measures. The treatment went on for a very long period of time. It was hard to standardize. All the strikes were against being able to empirically demonstrate a difference. And it's remarkable that a number of studies have been able to demonstrate a difference. Although the more you create a control group that's a credible therapy by itself, right. the less it's treatment as usual, you can get great results against treatment as usual. Right. But the more you have a credible alternative treatment, actually the treatments start merging. They're a lot less different than they appear on the surface. And what they they share is a very good relationship with the patient. I I think that's a big take home message. And I think what Marsha did is she brought to the fore a characteristic in conducting therapy, at least within a a CBT framework that was missing. And I think this added a tremendous uh, amount uh, clinically and 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 also enhancing the process of change. Um, and uh, it goes clearly goes beyond dealing with, with borderlines. And maybe someday um, we're going to get rid of the... Uh, Terrible term. Al- the, the alphabet soup that characterizes our uh, different approaches to, to therapy. What, what Marcia did was validate not just the individual patient, but validate all difficult patients. And she also validated the idea of therapists working with difficult patients. Right. One, one, one last thing I would bring up is, is the development that happened late in the course of CBT that brings it closer to DBT. So the Tim, Beck, Tim Beck died, the developer of CBT, died about six months ago at the age of, of 100. The last 10 years of his life were devoted to treating schizophrenic patients. So he went, as he progressed in his career, from treating the less ill to the more ill. And what he developed was a wonderful combination of CBT with the techniques of recovery treatment, which focus on finding meaning in life, how to develop a sense of life's worth, even in the face of having a serious illness and and many, many life problems. So that idea of finding, and Marsha's book is finding, making a worthwhile life. What Tim Beck did with CBT was actually incorporate some of the same ideas, the same goals, and the same techniques that no matter how difficult the person's life is, it's possible to find important meaning in it. Right. On that note, I'll let you go back to unpacking. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. This has been a tremendous pleasure compared to the rest of my week. I love it. And we'll continue as long as we're able to. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.